0: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and I have the real pleasure to talk to Paul Brian McInerney about his really interesting new book, From Social Movement to Moral Market, How the Circuit Riders Sparked an IT Revolution and Created a Technology Market. Paul Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks uh, for bringing me on today. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. A a, a very interesting uh, book, a, a timely book, a book that spans a couple of different disciplines. Before we get to it, maybe you could tell us just a little bit about your academic background and where you are now. Sure.
1: Uh, I am an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, My background is in economic sociology, organizational sociology, social movements, and technology, which is sort of a weird combination of things uh, that really does come out in, in the book when you see uh, how everything comes together. Uh, I grew up in New York and uh, did my uh, undergraduate work at St. John's University, which uh, at the time had a quite a rivalry with Seton Hall um, on the basketball court, um, and uh, did my graduate work at Columbia University.
0: Well, I can say that rivalry hasn't gone away, and probably by the time we're posting this, we'll be in the middle of the Big East tournament, so uh, hopefully um, a a game is is about to occur. Um, I wanted to start talking about the book by actually talking about some of what you mentioned in your preface. Uh, I enjoyed your preface and what what you had to say about your own rebellious youth. Mm -hmm. So how did your time in the punk music scene, it sounds like the punk music scene in New York, motivate this book, if at all?
1: Uh, so I was always interested, and I mentioned this in the preference uh, really briefly. Um, you know, we had a it was a very tight knit scene, so we had a lot of friends and bands, and uh, so I I understood from the inside working of those bands how hard it was to get by, and when folks had the opportunity to sign with a major label, to actually make money from their music, uh, it was a really difficult time in integrating that with the overall ethos of the punk movement, which was generally to avoid the mainstream, stay out of the mainstream. Uh, and you know at the same time, you couldn't begrudge these bands for... Uh, or with who your friends for wanting to make money doing the things that they loved. And, you know, they, they put in the time. And so these kinds of conversations, we, we'd always engage in these really deep uh, conversations about exactly this. Again, and the stakes were very, very low. So it's not like any of the people I knew went on to, to, um, become the next big thing or anything, but, uh, so what really drove my my early interest in questions about things like, you know, authenticity and how do groups maintain uh, off- boundaries around authenticity and who is a part of the group and, and um, who doesn't get to be a part of the group anymore, uh, we're very much informed by those early experiences. Um, and I... I think I knew enough about doing academic work to know that I should love what I study, but not necessarily study what I love. So mm-hmm. the thought did cross my mind that I should study this kind of phenomena in the punk rock scene, but then I was afraid that then I would it would demystify that entire world for me. Uh, and so I was very fortunate when I had the opportunity to look at how these problems manifested themselves within a Entirely different set of political and moral questions, right, revolving, revolving around technology and the social and larger social goods.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's just a, um, what, what you're describing. So many uh, first-time book authors um, uh, struggle with, mm-hmm. which is you know how close to get to the to the subject matter. Right. Um, your book begins in the mid 1990s. Mm-hmm. So, what did the landscape of technology look like for nonprofit organizations at at that point? Um, were were many organizations connected to the internet? Um, it feels like on the one hand a long time ago, but the on the other hand not that that long ago. So, take us to that time period that you begin your study. What what was the world that these um, activists and and people interested in it looking at when it when it came to the nonprofit sector? Okay.
1: Uh, The other part of my intellectual background, which uh, didn't make it into the book, is I originally went to grad school to study the new media industry in New York City, Silicon Alley. Uh, So I was interested in those high tech firms uh, and did some background research into those high tech firms when I was doing, particularly when I was doing my master's degree. And so I had a, a, a sense of the techno utopianism that was happening. Uh, during the early to mid-90s uh, in the in the for-profit high-tech sector. Uh, when I got the opportunity to meet up with, with folks doing this kind of work in the nonprofit sector, uh, the differences were very stark. Uh, people in the nonprofit sector were really concerned at the time with doing really simple things like getting online, like creating... Membership databases. I mean, things that nowadays uh, ordinary people do all the time when they generate lists from their contacts o- on their computer to uh, um, print out labels for their Christmas cards. Uh, things that we take for granted now were were kind of a challenge back in in the '90s to 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 organize. And for these nonprofits, which were Resource poor and had to dedicate much of their funding toward accomplishing their missions, technology was really ancillary. It really wasn't a major part of what they were trying to do. And so when I talked to the circuit riders, which is the social movement in the book, about what, that, what their work was like in those early days, a lot of it was climbing under desks and running wires and uh, doing things that. Again, we take for granted like connecting printers to multiple computers, uh, which is something is very easy to do now with with the ubiquity of of wireless routers and Wi-Fi in your home. But at the time was kind of complicated, uh, and so the nonprofit sector really did need some people to champion technology and to help lead them. Uh, across what they call the organizational
0: divide. Yeah, and it seems that, that your book is, is a lot about just this issue, which is how we understand problems mm-hmm. and, and how problems are are conceived of. So um, in this case, you know, one of the, the, the debates was whether this issue was primarily a private problem of certain organizations mm-hmm. or really a social problem. Yes. So I wonder how some of the key individuals and groups of that time period – First conceptualize this situation. How did they seek to explain the, the the problem that they saw?
1: Yeah. So this is this to me is is the fascinating point, the part about approaching this as a social movements problem, because I think it's a problem that all social movements face, and that is how do you get other groups, groups that may have a stake in what it is that you're trying to do. How do you get give them a stake in what it is that you're trying to do first of all, and how do you recruit them as adherents. And they don't have to be necessarily people that you're trying to mobilize as part of the movement, but they could be uh, people who can provide other kinds of resources like legitimacy. And so the way that I think about it in the book is to think about how as a someone working in the nonprofit sector or somebody who wants to facilitate technological change in the nonprofit sector, how do you convince Resource holders, like foundation officers, that technology is worth investing in, right? In the nonprofit sector, there are a there are a variety of topics that are considered just inherently worthy, right? Homelessness, hunger, um, you can name any number of social problems. Uh, And that's not because there's anything inherently worthy about those problems, but there's a long institutional history of people working on those problems and making them worthwhile. Uh, Technology in the 1990s uh, really posed a problem for these folks in the sense that how do you convince people like foundation officers that technology is worth the investment? And how they did it early on was to try to connect or associate information technology, with the daily operations of a nonprofit, to really attach it to their mission and say, look, technology is is not just wires and computers and printers. It's fundamental to what nonprofits are trying to accomplish. And so it really is a part of the mission. Uh, and I talk about this in, in, in the book as a series of associations that uh, – specific people in the movement that were trying to launch this movement made between information technology conceptually and the missions of the organizations that that, that they were trying to help. And in packaging it this way and making this kind of association, they can bring it to, uh, they can create a story, which I call an account. Uh, and by bringing these accounts, bringing these stories to Foundation officers, they can get resources, get money needed to to do this kind of work. And at one point, it it, it hit in the in the mid 90s with the W. Alton Jones Foundation, which funded a basically a pilot study of their grantees. They said, "Okay, we're going to give you some money, and you can go out and wire all of these grantees together." And at the time, the grantees were were trying to uh, work on problems around low and zero emissions vehicles in the 1990s. And what those early circuit riders did was go to the foundations and say, look, uh, what you're trying to do is coordinate about 50 nonprofit organizations that are all working on the problem of emissions in uh, in automotive vehicles. And so how fundamental to this to them solving this problem is them communicating across these great distances. And so communications technologies is really fundamental to what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And the W. Alton Jones Foundation funded the earliest circuit riders to go out and connect these folks to the internet and connect them to one another to to do the networking. Uh, And that early stud, that early pilot program uh, was considered a huge success for about $150,000. They connected about fifty organizations together, uh, and felt like they made a real dent in the problem of doing research around low emissions and zero emissions vehicles
0: yeah, so this <clears throat> let's talk a little bit more about the circuit riders themselves. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a little bit about how, how they funded their operations right um but but uh what inspired them? You tell the story of where they got their name yes. um but but so maybe you could talk a little bit about that, but also how that inspiration. Uh, had an effect on the structure of their activities, okay. uh, the way in which they organize themselves is very important, particularly as we get to the next stage, which we 'll talk about in in just a little bit. So I wonder if you can talk about you know who are these people? Are we talking about um, hundreds of people? Are we talking about uh, more um, what is What are the circuit riders
1: So the earliest circuit riders were really just a handful of folks that were working toward this problem of of, uh, they were uh, in some ways you can think about them as geeks with a conscience. They were people with technology skills but that rather than sell those technology skills on the open market wanted to do something that had some kind of social or environmental impact. And uh, The earliest circuit riders uh, were only about 15 to 25 people that were scattered across the United States. Um, and this, this study that I mentioned, or the program, rather, that I mentioned that was started by W. Walton Jones Foundation uh, resulted in a report that was fairly widely circulated uh, among different foundations as a way for foundations to get their grantees online, uh, a cost-effective way for them to get their grantees online. And as that report circulated, other people obviously came across it. Uh, one person in particular, this, this uh, guy by the name of Rob Stewart, who was uh, sadly passed away just uh, a couple of years ago, uh, was a trained as a community organizer in the uh, public interest research group system and uh, thought this is a fantastic way to get um to get or to, to get nonprofit organizations online, and took it upon himself uh, as as an institutional entrepreneur uh, to organize a movement, to organize this what he thought of as a disparate group of people into some kind of cohesive collectivity, uh, and so and by giving them or. You know the the, the circuit rider name came out of the 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 early report and had more to do with the novelty of, of circuits than it did to the uh, antebellum creatures uh, of the time. But Rob Stewart really picked up this name and thought this is a this is a great way to give this movement some cachet by by identifying or attaching some kind of name to it. Uh, And then going around the country, which is what he did from his post at the Rockefeller Family Foundation, uh, and talking to different nonprofit groups uh, and different technology folks and saying, see, what you're doing is circuit riding, even though you're you're not calling it circuit riding, Uh, and he went around the country with basically a roadshow, uh, an early PowerPoint presentation. Uh, some of these presentations are still on online archives, uh, and you can see them. They're they're kind of fascinating in how rudimentary they are. Um, but uh, he went around the, the country and basically proselytized, evangelized, um, and taught, used these, this kind of language of evangelizing. So uh, what's interesting about the name Circuit Riders is that even though it didn't start from the antebellum preachers; it took on that notion of evangelizing for technology uh, or, or spreading the good word. Um, and eventually what had happened is, is uh, in order to connect these people, they started to organize conferences that they called Riders' Roundups, really playing on this frontiers cowboy preacher thing, Um to get people together and give them face time. The, the first one was a meeting of about 15 of these circuit riders that took place uh, actually where I am in Chicago.
0: Now, I wonder if we can talk about one of those conferences, sure. one of the the big ones. So uh, without, without glossing over too much of the history, mm-hmm. we could say that things were going pretty well. Um, but there was this seminal conference held in, in New York State in 1998 yes. um, that really did shift the landscape right. and, and opened up space for the emergence of a new group yeah. and a new leader. Yeah. Uh, would you tell us about that, that conference and, and what happened there and how it really did uh, shift uh, the direction of, of this movement in some significant ways? Yeah,
1: so so one of the ways that Rob Stewart was able to enroll circuit riders so successfully was by appealing to their notions of social justice and environmental justice. And he really did take a lot of the techno utopian language that was uh, in the air during that. Remember, this is the time of the dot com boom. So really people thought that the internet was, was going to change the world. And, uh, and specifically, it changed the way that 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 markets operated. But Rob Stewart and the early circuit riders took these ideas and uh, and rebrand them in this social movements aspect to think about technological revolution in a in a very different sense. They thought about revolution as as having In both terms, both uses of the term, right? There's a technological revolution that's going to transform the technical aspects of how we do our work. But then there's this other revolutionary potential. And that is that once we've transformed the way that we do that work, people will be empowered to engage in social justice movements, in environmental justice movements, in ways that they hadn't been able to before, and really affect significant policy changes. And he, he used this rhetoric around revolutions and revolutionary, um, and picked up a lot of the techno-utopian language and rhetoric to describe how technology, when channeled through the nonprofit sector, was going to change the world. So he organizes this meeting in upstate New York, um, uh, the Rockefeller Co- Conference Center in, in Kaikut, New York, uh, because again he he was a foundation fellow at the Rockefeller Family Fund, and so he had access to the to, to, to the conference center. And he brings together a group of foundation officers, some of which were had already been involved in the in funding Circuit Rider programs and some of which who hadn't been involved in, in funding circuit rider pro- programs. And they were, the ostensible plan was to develop a a planning document to advance circuit riding, to make circuit riding the way that we did technology work in the nonprofit sector. Uh, of the people who attended the meeting, uh, Microsoft... Uh, sent somebody who was doing some work with them in Seattle uh, looking at how it is that... So Microsoft had a fairly generous software donation program, and they were finding that very small volunteer organizations were asking for essentially enterprise-level software, which is high-level software that you would use to connect multiple servers or to service thousands of people and they knew that they couldn't possibly be using this software for anything. So Microsoft commissioned a study to find out how people were using their software donation program. Uh, and the author of that study, a woman named Joan Fanning uh, said, came back to Microsoft and said, really what, what needs to happen is we need to develop effectively consulting firms for the nonprofit sector to help them use software uh, in ways that will help them better achieve their mission. And so Microsoft said, great, we're going to send you to this conference that we were, in, we were invited to. And so they sent Joan Fanning to the, the conference at KiCut. Uh, at uh, the turning point happens uh, during the first day of the meeting when Rob Stewart stands in front of all these foundation officers and starts talking using this, this techno-utopian rhetoric. And the foundation officers who... Are, are, while politically progressive and politically liberal uh, are fairly conservative when they think about how to spend foundation funds, uh, were really put off by the revolutionary rhetoric. Uh, and they were even more put off by the fact that there was, uh, in Joan Fanning's terms, not really a concrete action plan. And Joan Fanning being a uh, very aware pragmatist Uh, took advantage of this, the confusion in the situation, to stand up and say, okay, here's how we can turn this meeting around. Here's how we can uh, make something of this early plan. And she took the reins in this particular meeting and said, hey, this is how we can make these ideas, uh, and in her language, actionable. Here's something concrete that we can do. Uh, We can fund organizations like the organization that she wanted to start, to help nonprofits figure out how to use software, which is a very different kind of rhetoric than saying, if we fund the circuit riders, we will generate radical social change. And the foundation officers uh, this really this this actionable, concrete, pragmatic approach to solving the problems of the technological divide in the nonprofit sector really appealed to the foundation officers in the room, and they started. Channeling their attention, but more important, their resources toward uh, Joan Fanning and her model of technology work, which uh, became the organization called npower
0: so we have this this uh, sort of dramatic history um, and and I think everyone's sort of skin crawls when you think about what what might have happened mm-hmm. uh, at at this this conference and you you can only. Imagine the, the 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 conversations that happened uh, sort of off stage, right. and, and uh, you could fill in a lot of blanks. Probably most of those blanks didn't actually occur, yeah. but at least um, it, it does tell a very dramatic story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in the interest of time, um, what what do you make of this this story, this this case study? Um, I wonder if you can uh, sort of draw for us a couple of conclusions sure. um, about uh, about how social movements work. Mm-hmm. Um, about the influence, good or bad of philanthropy okay um, and and sort of how you step back from this and, and try to make sense of this very detailed history that that you tell in the book
1: yeah, so I, I think what what it tells a couple of things I think about the about social movements and and collective behavior uh, first, it really speaks to the importance of what what I call in the, the, the book uh, competences, which builds on a concept by a colleague uh, in sociology, uh, Neil Flegstein. He uses this term social skill to describe how it is that people may be empowered to uh, challenge certain kinds of institutional arrangement. And so I add to that this notion of competence, this idea that when people are, you know, that the, the people are informed and aware of the situations that they find themselves in. And people with social skill can take advantage of the knowledge that they have in those instances uh, to alter the course of what ultimately becomes the, the, the course of the, the the movement itself. Although at the time, it wasn't obvious that this was going to really radically change the direction of the the movement, um, but but what became faith, faithful uh, about this particular occasion was that Joan Fanning's competence uh, really refocused the attentions of the foundation officers in the room toward doing things in a much more conservative way, uh, and so the the thinking about the role of philanthropy, I mean social movements studies has a long history of thinking about what are the roles of resources in allowing social movements to uh, gain more adherence to become ultimately successful and uh, money matters Uh, money matters quite a bit for these movements to be able to accomplish the goals that they, they need to accomplish or that they want to accomplish and so Uh, Foundation officers played uh, sort of an outsourced or an outsized uh, uh, role in shaping the social movements by being decision makers around how these resources get spent, how they get distributed. Uh, And this moment in history rechannels funding, uh, material resources, uh, and then even more important than the, the material resources, uh, rechannels the legitimacy, the resource of legitimacy, away from the circuit riders and toward Joan Fanning and, and her new organization, NPower. Because with foundation funding, or foundation funding fun- follows sort of what uh, what um, Rob Merton, uh, an old functionalist sociologist, called the, the Matthew effect. Uh, and that is, you know, to whom... Uh, to 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 those people who have much, much is given, uh, and so by getting the legitimacy of a foundation behind you, uh, which is how the circuit riders started, they could generate even more legitimacy and more funding for their model. Uh, and so, subsequent to this meeting, you find some really interesting uh, quotes that that people gave me in interviews and, and elsewhere. Around how Joan Fanning really saved the the meeting, but more important, really saved the movement. Uh, but as as we see throughout the rest of the the history, that movement takes a very different direction after that meeting, right? It's it, because a new model becomes legitimated in this particular meeting.
0: Yeah, as as you describe, um, and I think as as anyone listening can tell. There's just a lot to learn from your book, I think, for scholars, but, but as related to that for practitioners, yeah. um, you know, I think that there uh, isn't enough uh, uh, writing, uh, serious writing by, by academics uh, that, that really can be consumed by uh, practitioners, people who are involved in these kinds of organizations, people who are involved in social movements, and it's for that reason I think that there is uh, a real wide audience uh, for the book. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, What's what's next for you? What do you have a, a new project brewing? This is a very recent release, yes. but uh, do you have something next? Is there? Are you going to stay in this technology realm? Or are you going to shift into um, back into the punk movement of the 1990s? Tell us tell us what's on your desk sure. now. Sure, uh, I
1: have two two projects uh, going, and not to be uh, not to play too much on the pun of brewing. Uh, one actually has to do with microbrewers. Uh, my fundamentally I've been always interested in how these different kinds of social and economic values uh, blend together over time. And, And so one of the things that I found dissatisfying about some of the early social movements literature is that they painted people as, as either being black or white as being on one side or the other. And in the, 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 so the book, the, you know the circuit riders move back and forth, and end power moves back and forth, and no actor is distinctly on one side or another. So we we generate this world full of hybrids. And so the work that I'm doing now uh, focuses on new forms of hybridity. Uh, and so I'm looking at new forms of hybridity uh, between social and market values in two different settings. Uh, the first is among Uh, the microbrewery movement, where I'm interested in this interesting puzzle to me, at least, that microbrewers work off of an apprenticeship model, which means that they generate their future competition, uh, and at the same time, they engage in these collaborations with other microbrewers to produce these one off Beer styles, um, and so I wondered why it is that in a competitive market like the microbrewing industry, which is a very small part of the beer business, uh, would organizations sow the seeds of their own competition, and then furthermore collaborate with their competitors? And so I want to know a little bit more about what the dynamics are between behind that amalgamation of competition and collaboration at the same time. Um, And I'm doing a similar project in farmer's markets in Chicago where I'm looking at how different kinds of social and market values are combined and recombined in the things that people sell at farmer's markets. So farmer's markets are really an attempt at decommodifying food Right, trying to say that there's something more to this food. That you know, you're you're spending extra money on this food because you're getting something more than just simply the nutrition. You're getting something organic. You're getting something local. Um, and how do we combine those ideas with uh, something that's ultimately for sale in a marketplace?
0: Well, I'd have to say you, it sounds like you have chosen very wisely in your next next two project. Um, okay. They they sound like they're very natural outgrowths of of the current book and and, uh, I hope you come back with uh, whatever comes of of these two projects. Um, Until then uh, we have your current book uh, published this year by Stanford University Press, From Social Movement to Moral Market, How the Circuit Riders Sparked an IT Revolution and Created a Technology Market. Uh, Paul Bryant, thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thanks so much, Ed.